When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's the 9th of May, and in Moscow, that can only mean one thing. Victory Day. If you wander around Moscow, there will be music blaring out of loudspeakers, young couples wearing little pilotka side caps, the tanks rolling into Red Square. It's a genuinely participative day. As the military prepares to mount its annual parade through the Russian capital today to mark the anniversary of victory in the Second World War, Vladimir Putin will be preparing to address the Russian people. This was supposed to be the moment when Putin would declare a new military victory in Ukraine. But it's been 10 weeks since the invasion began, and things haven't quite gone to plan. It was one of Russia's most important warships, but tonight it has sunk. Russia is suffering troop losses and has been unable to take Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv as of yet. Today, the death toll of Russian troops in Ukraine could already match those killed over 10 years in Afghanistan. Gerasimov is Russia's second general who has died in the Ukrainian war in the past week. What's gone wrong with Russia's military campaign? There was a failure of preparation and planning and then of training and and execution. The Russian military is pretty much on its last legs. How are Russia's military setbacks going down in Moscow? And how worried should we be about what might come next? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Victory Day. Taking stock of Russia's war. I think it's fairly clear that he didn't expect to be where he is now. That's Russian politics and security specialist Mark Galliotti. Mark's a senior associate fellow at the military think tank Rusi, and the person we turn to when we're trying to find out what's happening in the Kremlin. I mean, just to dwell briefly on the 9th of May, it's Victory Day, which if essentially nationalist hyperbole has become the secular religion of Putin's Russia, Victory Day is the high holy day. It's the celebration of triumph in what the Russians call the Great Patriotic War, Second World War in the West. In physical terms, the Victory Day parade is going to look like it normally does. (laughs) 
There will be all the various hardware cranking and groaning its way through the streets. I assume there they'll be, be this... missing a few tanks. Well, missing a few, but they'll manage to find some, even if they have to fly them in from the Far East to have <laughs> give Putin his day. I don't actually imagine that the parade will look very different. The context is is going to be all. First of all, it's going to be a question of what is Putin actually going to say? I mean, is he going to try and announce that there has been some kind of victory in Ukraine? Is he going to use this as the basis for declaring an escalation? And also at the same time, he's going to be surrounded by veterans and serving officers. A lot of the people around him are going to know that not only are a lot of boys not making it home, but that actually they're doing so because of a war that he started and because of a really appalling strategy that he seems to have imposed on the generals. This war is not going in the way that Putin had hoped. The strategy is flawed. They've had a lot of losses in very little time. How much are people on the ground in Russia hearing about that? Very little. I mean, we have to realise that this is an information control society now. The last independent media outlets have been squeezed out and destroyed. At the same time, people are coming home injured. People are not coming home at all or they're coming home in zinc boxes. And so obviously the reality is beginning to hit. There's only so long you can continue to hold this line. So I, th I think that at the moment Russians know very little, but I think there is clearly a growing suspicion. The real story is very different from what they're being told. So what is the real story? What are the Russian people not hearing about how the military campaign is playing out? To judge Russia's military performance so far, we turned to a general. So we're clearly in the second phase of this war. The first phase, which was a failure for the Russians, saw them trying to do three things at once in the north, south and the east and just not succeeding. Dusting off his map of the campaign for us is General Sir Richard Barons. He's a former commander of Joint Forces Command, which was one of the most senior positions in the British military. So in, in this phase, we're seeing them focus on one big challenge, which is to take the two-thirds of the Donbass that they didn't occupy when this phase of the war opened. And to do that, they are trying to focus their resources better, to batter their way into the Donbass, and then follow it up, not with the light forces that we saw initially around Kiev, but armoured forces, so tanks, infantry and armoured vehicles. And this so far is a stalemate in as much as the Russians have made very modest progress. They have failed to make use of the mass of forces that they've got, and they've fed it in in little bits, which the Ukrainians have dealt with quite effectively. And a combination of what looks like a lack of training, the effect of damp weather, which is confining them to the roads, and also it seems a lack of Russian will to fight. So they've made very modest progress, but this battle has a long way to go. And at the moment, as things stand, you know, you say they've made modest progress. If you were, if you were in the Donbass at the moment, who would you think was winning right now? So I think if, if you took a 24-hour snapshot, you would think the Ukrainian side was winning mm. because it's holding the line and it is inflicting serious pain on the Russian forces. If you look beyond 24 hours, you're still faced with this conundrum that the Russians have a very much larger force and a lot more firepower 
and they've focused it on a smaller piece of geography. And one of the reasons that we're in this kind of stalemate is as a result of the performance of the Ukrainian military and the support that they have had, frankly, at the 11th hour from the West and the very poor performance of the Russian military, which I don't think anyone really expected. And what do you blame that on? Where has it gone wrong for them? The failure of the Russian military is a a combination of systemic shortcomings. First of all, in the opening phases of the war, it seems to have been planned by the FSB, by the intelligence services, and then handed to the military to execute at very short notice. So they were not able to prepare. And what they were told to expect was a pushover that the Ukrainian people would be delighted to see Russian troops arriving in Kiev. And of course, what they found was completely different. So the first so failure was bad one intelligence. Of, so the question of intelligence is an interesting one because the Russians somewhere must absolutely know what the reality of Ukraine is. And what seems more likely is the reality of that never made its way to the key decision makers because it wasn't news they wanted to hear. And there is this sense that given the pervasive effect of corruption in the Russian system, quite senior people weren't inclined to give President Putin and his inner circle news they didn't want because they would reject it and they would then themselves be cut off from the flow of corrupt wealth. How does that that actually play out? So over time, within the Russian military, a lot of money has been consumed to buy things like spare parts and ammunition and the food and the other things that a a military in the field will need. And what seems to have happened is what the money was intended to buy were high quality rations that sustain a military doing very tiring things in the field on an enduring basis in difficult weather. And at least in some cases, what has turned up was literally dog food that had been relabeled as premium beef and was already seven years out of date, which is why you found Russian soldiers knocking on doors begging for food. And that is because of corruption. And in things like tires and spare parts, what has turned up has either been in insufficient quantity or it's been very poor quality and and so seem to have allied with a, a lack of investment in training. They have not had the training that has allowed them to do much more than drive down roads and and parade themselves. They have Mm. been easy prey for a more agile, skillful and much more resilient and resolute Ukrainian opposition. And there have been some really visible failures for them, you know, not least the the number of generals who seem to have been killed. I mean, how surprising is that? Just, you know, as as, as a a former British general, you don't expect at, at that rank to really be in the firing line. So I quarrel with that slightly in that that one of the jobs of a senior military commander is to uh, use the American expression, battlefield circulation. So it's very important that the troops that that are doing the fighting see their leaders and that the leaders who see them understand how they feel and how they're doing. But in this particular case, a couple of things seem to have happened. The first is that the junior level leadership have, have not been very good. Stories of the soldiers left to freeze in the woods whilst the officers retired to the nearest warm house, that that's poor leadership. Mm. And when things have got stuck, because of the lack of flexibility in the way the Russians seem to operate, senior leaders have had to go forward to issue instructions, which in most Western armed forces, a junior leader would have sorted out on their own initiative. And that's exposed them. And then I think 
Allied to that, there has been a, a breakdown in the Russian communication system. So they, they have military radios that would normally be encrypted and those networks uh, haven't worked very well. And so inevitably they've fallen back on open networks and mobile phones. And, and that means that movement and the location of senior people is much easier for the Ukrainians to identify and then do something about, which they have done. If a succession of British generals had been killed in a matter of weeks, there'd be a lot of questions being asked. So how are Russia's military failures being sold to the Russian public? Mark Galliotti has been watching Russian state TV to find out. Essentially, what we're seeing is a truly vitriolic take on, firstly, what's happening in Ukraine. You are listening to the programme 60 Minutes. Last night, our military prevented a technical disaster of planetary scale. Ukrainian defenders decided to play war right on the doorstep of the biggest power plant in Europe. Only because of the heroic actions of our military could the fire brigade get in. Secondly, an attempt to try to rewrite the record. So, for example, things like the Bucha massacres. If they refer to it at all, they're claiming that it's actually all a put-up job and the quote-unquote dead bodies were all actually just actors and so forth. Or else they're claiming that attacks on civilian targets in Ukraine are actually staged by Ukrainian forces as false flag operations in order to discredit the Russians. We've got to realise that if you're bombarded with this nonsense, it kind of seeps into your soul. But at the same time, Russians have had decades, arguably centuries, of experience of being lied to, and therefore have that relevant skill of almost being able to hold two truths in their mind at any one time. They know what the official line is. They know what it's safe to say in public. And then they can actually believe very different things. Mm. We, we shouldn't assume that just because opinion polls at the moment are showing support for the operation, that that, A, genuinely reflects what people are thinking now, Someone comes up to you with a clipboard these days and says, I, I, I'd like to ask you what you think about the government's <laughs> actions. You know what answer you're meant to give. Yes. Um, but B, whether it lasts exactly when better notion of the casualties and a better notion of the cost to ordinary Russians and their lifestyles, once that becomes more and more clear. And how has that already started to filter through? Because, you know, there was a moment where all the sanctions were sort of being put in place and we saw lots of companies leaving Russia in a rush and we thought this would have a huge impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. But, I mean, life seems to be carrying on there, you know, without too many problems. Is there a sense that people are getting slightly weary of all of this now? I think so. But, yeah, as you say, it hasn't really bitten yet. I mean, yes, mm. at the moment... You can't go to Ikea. <laughs> there are worse tragedies in life, I have to say. <laughs> There's perhaps less variety on the shelves. Food prices are, are rising. So, yes, they are noticing it. Hello from Russia. My name is Nikki. I live in St. Petersburg city. I wanted to get some tomatoes and every single kind of tomatoes now feels illegally expensive. But I think there is a sense that this is sort of absolutely bearable. Really, I think we have to appreciate that economic warfare takes time. Yeah. For me, it's actually going to be about September. We're really going to be able to get a sense of how it's going to bite. Oh, really? By September, most families' savings will have been used up. Same for a lot of businesses. The initial optimism that things are going to only last briefly will have died away. 
August is, is dacha season. A lot of Russians, even relatively poor ones, have little sort of cottages out in the country. And you go there and you, you pick mushrooms and, and you relax. September, you come back. And in some ways, that's that kind of almost reassessment moment, and particularly when winter is coming. Unemployment may well be starting to really bite. For all these reasons, we're going to have to wait until autumn for the sanctions to really start to actually have their impact. So come the autumn, will the Russian public be up in arms? And would that make any difference to the Kremlin? We'll have more in just a moment. But first, a quick message from a colleague. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. So, Mark, on the one hand, come autumn, we think people will really start to feel the difference in, in their ordinary lives. Presumably, they'll have a little bit more information about what's really happening on the ground. They'll know about all the deaths. But every time I speak to a Russia expert, I'm always told that it's not necessarily what the people think that will matter, which I find bizarre for a country that's famous for revolutions. But they always say it's actually the people around Putin who are the ones who can make any kind of change. So, firstly, is that true? And secondly, tell us a bit about the people around Putin right now and what they're thinking? I think on the whole, people power only really works when the system, the elite, and particularly the security apparatus, is already divided. 
So long as the security apparatus is united and still willing to follow the Kremlin's orders, sure, people can start to protest. In Moscow, the crowds grew. And in St. Petersburg, too. But the point is, try and protest in large numbers and the police and the National Guard will come and crack skulls and drag people off to the, to the cells. And people know that, and most people are not heroes. You only go out and risk that in the main if you think you've got a decent chance of getting away with it and maybe even accomplishing something with it. So I think, yes, it's going to be much more about what's happening to, in the elite around Putin. And here we have an interesting dichotomy. Look, Putin himself, his circle has been shrinking and shrinking. The number of people he actually listens to, pays attention to, worries about their opinions is very small. And on the whole, it's made up of you know, ex-KGB types like him. You know, the, these are all people who on the whole share a fairly common set of views. Mm. Then there's a huge other body of what you might think of the technocrats. But there's a very kind of uh, Downton Abbey sort of sense sometimes that you know, all the people who actually run the country for Putin, the prime minister, Mishustin, the, most of the ministers and so forth, they're very much the below stairs staff. Their job is just to keep everything working so that Putin and his mates can be enjoying their party. And I think this is the problem. Who is going to tell Putin that he's wrong? There's a lot of potential discontent. But unless we have some particular crucial point, like the rise of protests in the streets, I think a lot of people will be unhappy, including within the elite. But you might say the risks of doing anything about it are that much greater than the risks of just simply keeping your head down and hoping things work out in the end. What do you think the turning point would be? What would it take to actually force change? Well, I mean, I think if I was going to kind of create a scenario, mm. we know that the National Guard, who have also been fighting in Ukraine and frankly dying because they're not really frontline combat troops, there's a lot of discontent amongst them. I mean, I sort of follow some social media channels which are very much used by National Guard. And there's a lot of talk about that they're used as cannon fodder and so forth. Very bad move, frankly, on Putin's part to put your Praetorian Guard, the people who ultimately you depend on to keep order in the streets, and put them into the front line and, and, and let them fight and die. So, you know, let's say there is kind of growing discontent. And, you know, the police and the National Guard, they are on the whole drawn from blue-collar communities. Many of their friends and so forth will still be in sort of ordinary life. Hmm. And there's a certain point where actually you, you begin to feel that maybe you're on the wrong side. I mean, again, I go back to the very end of the Soviet Union. I remember talking to a, an Amon, a riot policeman, and the Amon are now part of the National Guard, who said that, and he was about 22 at the time, uh, who said that, you know, one of his big problems was that no girls wanted to go out with him because the reputation of the Amon as the stormtroopers of the Kremlin was so bad. Now, that sounds really silly as a point. But if you, if your family are isolated, if your kids are being picked on at school because of what you do, that begins to affect things. So let's say the National Guard and the police are feeling definitely unhappy. We could find that you know, as unemployment begins to bite in autumn, it's going to bite in a very differential way. There are going to be some cities, so-called mono-cities, which are very much dependent on a single huge factory where we might have massive levels of unemployment. So it may well be that we'll start seeing strikes and protests, and it could then be that when they're called out to suppress them, the National Guard or the police look the other way or find excuses why they're not there or just simply oh, wow. don't do it. Now, the instinct of the state will be to crack down further. What are they going to do? Are they going to be sort of flying in National Guard units from elsewhere? What if they start saying no? You know, these things acquire momentum. 
This is just one scenario. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. But it could well be that you start getting that sense of momentum. And as we saw in 1989 with the collapse of the Warsaw Pact states, a lot of these regimes look incredibly tough and dangerous and powerful until suddenly they don't. Because once some people start to defect, other people may well think, hang on, actually, maybe I'm not on the winning side at the moment. And no one wants to be the last person to defect. So suddenly you, you may well get massive defections. And you mentioned, you know, you're already sensing some signs of discontent on some of these social media channels between members of the National Guard. Are we getting a sense that perhaps there are some figures in the inner circle too who are perhaps voicing objections? Yes, I think the thing is there's there's discontent and there's how you express it. If you think of the real people at the top of the system, it is clear that there is serious discontent within the technocrats. They basically were not consulted. A lot of them learned about the invasion the same time we did. They weren't able to prepare. We have, for example, the very able chair of the central bank, Elvira Nabulina, you know, who basically told Putin to his face that this war is flushing the economy into the sewers. He was not happy. She's tried several times now to be allowed to resign, but he, he's not letting her. There have been rumours about this attempted resignation, whether it's dissent against the war or a recognition that the economic framework that she has spent years building is now very quickly unravelled. But our real problem is this. We don't know for sure what Putin and what various other people very close to Putin genuinely know. Is anyone truly daring to to give Putin the, the absolute unvarnished truth? And likewise, maybe there are people close to Putin who are also cocooned in this sort of bubble in which no one dares tell the boss what's what. On the whole, there clearly is disquiet. It's interesting how Defence Minister Shoigu, he reportedly was actually very uncomfortable with the annexation of Crimea back in 2014. But it's interesting, not only has he been largely seen of late wearing a civilian suit rather than his military uniform, but also he's been keeping quite a low profile. There are some people who are saying, ah, you see, he's trying to distance himself from his military role and from the war. I, you know, who knows, really? But this is, this is some of the stuff He did disappear for a while too, didn't he? Yeah, there's meant to have been that, that he had uh, maybe a heart attack or other sort of heart problems. And he definitely did look quite rough when, when we actually saw him again. But I also wouldn't be surprised, you know, Shoyu is a phenomenally adroit political operator. And I wonder if also he just thought it was worth keeping a low profile because he didn't want to be in a position where either he'd have to say, the war is going just great and then be shown to have been a liar, or conversely to say, no, the war's not going so well, which actually risks making Putin look like a liar. So it may well be that he decided to extend his convalescence a little bit longer than he needed to. I mean, you know, it oh, is wow. not safe to speak out against the boss at the moment. In Moscow, nobody wants to be associated with the military failures of the last few weeks, But where will the campaign go next? What should we expect to see on the battlefield in the next few months? Here's General Sir Richard Barons again. So on the evidence so far, unless there is a dramatic improvement in the Russian military performance in the Donbass, and unless the Ukrainians are sold short and don't get the help they need to keep the Russians at bay, this battle in the Donbass will more likely than not end up in a very bitter and difficult stalemate where the Ukrainians have not lost but but can't throw the Russians out and the Russians can't make enough progress to secure the whole of the Donbass, which I think would be the minimum uh, objective. But it, it is as likely that 
Russia's eyes then turn to the south of Ukraine and the ambition to link up maybe to Transnistria because there are Russian forces and Russian speakers there. And then that would take you to an enormous fight for Odessa and the area around Odessa, which right now you would say looks beyond them. But we should not apply a timescale based on wish fulfillment on this war because given mm. enough will and time and resource, of course Russia could build the capability to have that fight and conceive of winning it, even if it's definitely not before this summer. And in terms of wish fulfillment, you know, there there was a, a speech by the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss a few days ago in which she talked about throwing Russian soldiers out of every part of Ukraine, which seemed to imply reclaiming the Crimea. Britain has always stood up to bullies. Heavy weapons, tanks, aeroplanes, digging deep in our inventories, ramping up production. We need to do all of this. We will keep going further and faster to push Russia out of the whole of Ukraine. Is that in any way possible? I think it's important at this stage of the conflict to keep all of those things alive on the table, even if everyone can see that they're not immediately uh, achievable. And I think the future for Ukraine will partly be settled by what happens on the battlefield. And the more the West now gives Ukrainian uh, military offensive capability, the ability to, to come off the defence and to assault Russian military capability and the positions that they hold in order to eject them, the, the more you conceive of that, then taking back the Donbass becomes uh, probably the first thought. Uh, Crimea, I think, is a much bigger objective. But the other part of this problem is in the relationship between the West and Russia beyond these days and weeks and beyond this current phase of the war. Mm. Because the key to Russia getting out of Ukraine is Russia seeing that the game is up in terms of its place in the world and that's in its own interests to come to an accommodation there which involves giving Ukraine all or most of its country back and we are a very long way from that but that's where politics and sanctions and the revitalization of NATO and political unity in, in the West extending over years should take us. And Mark, given that things aren't going very well, it's going to be very hard to see how this war ends in any kind of victory. Is there a chance that he might get quite desperate? Is there a chance he might do something like using tactical nuclear weapons? Three months ago, if you'd said, are there any circumstances in which Putin could go nuclear? I'd have said absolutely not. We're clearly dealing with a rather different Putin than the one that we were used to. One that is almost more of a caricature of himself, more of an old man in a hurry. So it's hard to be quite so sanguine, but I still think the chances are pretty limited. Firstly, because there aren't really obvious military targets to use nuclear weapons against. Secondly, politically, it really would totally change the situation. I think not just with NATO, but we've got to remember that Beijing would be very unhappy with the breaking of the nuclear taboo. Mm. And Putin and Russia need to have China on side at the moment. Thirdly, they haven't even tested these weapons since 1990. They've been sitting mothballed in arsenals around the Russian Federation. It would be quite a complex thing to actually try and recondition them, move them from the arsenals to where they're going to actually mount them onto the launch systems, probably Skander or Kaliber missiles, and then launch them. 
Firstly, they'd be doing them basically off manuals because no one in service has, has any experience of that. And secondly, we should note the whole, that process is probably going to be something that the Western intelligence will be able to pick up on, particularly the movement of warheads from one of these 12 depots to a launch site, which gives us a chance to also try and sort of step in. So I think there's a whole variety of, of, of practical and political and military reasons why I, I don't think that something like that will make sense. Beneath the surface, of course, more Russians will be coming aware of how hard this fight is. And the question is bound to come in the future, do they settle or, or do they double down? And if in doubling down, it means resorting to the use of chemical weapons or tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, it can't conceivably be in Russia's best interest to take the conflict to that point. But war has its own logic and the red mist descends and these things suddenly move from being unthinkable to just unpalatable and then they become necessary. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Mark Galliotti and General Sir Richard Barons. The producers today were Olivia Case and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.